Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a day that was when you fulfilled ancient promises and poured out your spirit and Jesus was praised by 3,000 more people. And Lord, we thank you that we stand in a long chain of gatherings that trace our existence back to that day. And we pray, Lord, that as we come now to hear from your word, that you would, by your, that same Holy Spirit, who is still alive and active in the hearts of your people, that, that he would cause your word to come alive in our hearts this morning. And that we would respond to you and to your word in, the, in a, the way that is appropriate to what you've said. And I pray, Lord, that there would be, uh, that there would be a, an impact in our hearts that would lead to us living more the way that you desire us to, feeling more the way you desire us to, thinking more the way, loving each other more that way, that, that you would use this time in your word to shape us as a church into your image, O oh God, in the image of your son, Jesus Christ. So I'm asking, Lord, once again, for something supernatural that I cannot produce with my words and we cannot produce by good intentions. We need you, O oh Lord, to work. And so we pray that you would for your glory here and among the nations. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. As you came in, you would have received a bulletin. Uh, in the bulletin was one of these. So um, we started doing this with our Proverbs series as we sort of had the outline of the sermon there. And people seem to really appreciate that. So our plan is to keep that going. And then what we've started up again on the back is the study questions. Now, these are the study questions that uh, the small groups use every week. But uh, you can use them on your own just to kind of uh, help your own uh, thinking and, and ruminations on on uh, on what we've done together here this morning. And so uh, we're going to try this out for a while, just putting one of these in every bulletin. So if you get a bulletin, you get one. But there's also more of these in the back. So in the foyer, we've got the info table there. Off to the left, we got a bunch of these. And so you can take more. And uh, small group leaders, uh, we're a week ahead of schedule. So there you go. we got uh, got got study questions this week. We are uh, just on the end of a sermon series that we finished up last week through the book of Proverbs, and uh, that was through Proverbs chapter 9 to 31, and on top of the first eight chapters a couple years ago, uh, we've covered off the book of Proverbs. There were a few Proverbs that didn't make their way into our series, and so I actually wrote an article on the church website uh, on our blog this week that kind of ties those up. There was a few Proverbs that had to do with the um, our emotions. It's very interesting, so go read it. It's there on the website. Next week, we begin a nine-week series in Matthews chapter 8 to 10. And then after that, we're going to go into a longer series from December all the way to June uh, in the book of Genesis. We're going to pick up where we left off in Genesis chapter 6, and then we're going to work all the way up to in, to the, in June to Genesis 22. So that's from the story of, of Noah all the way to the death of Sarah. So a big, a big chunk that I'm really looking forward to, to walking through with you. Today's message come from, comes from Acts chapter 2. It's not connected to a series. This is uh, just a, a standalone message. Most of the time, we don't do this. Most of the time, we just let the Bible pick what we're going to talk about as we, we pick a portion of the Bible and we preach through it and 
God sets the agenda in that way, but uh, there are times where, where we uh, have the sense that there's some things we need to talk about, and uh, and we tend to do that kind of thing often at the beginning of, of a new ministry season, which tends to go along with the school year, and so that's what we're doing here. Let me explain what's going on behind uh, this uh, message this morning and, and what was on my heart and, and our heart as elders and why we, why we went in this direction. We are at a unique moment in our life together as a church. The last 15 years of EBC's history have included a lot of change. Now, if you're familiar with EBC's history, you know that uh, at probably every 15-year period has included a fair bit of change. Uh, but the last 15 years have included a lot of change. 15 years ago, EBC was still meeting in the white building across town. It was bursting at the seams. Um, but at that point, in terms of attendance, was still largely a church where uh, most people knew most people. That was part of the dynamic. Uh, and most people, many people, I should say, had been there for years and years, been here for years and years. And the relationships ran deep, and people felt very comfortable in a, in a close-knit family relationship. Thirteen years ago, we moved into this building, and if you look at the attendance patterns in that, in that year, you see us go from average attendance of below 100 to average attendance of above 100. And people who study churches will tell you that when that happens, a big change happens in the, in the life of a church that often you don't pick up on until years later. And it's that change where you go from being a church where you feel like you know everybody to being a church where you say, hey, I've seen them for the last few weeks and I haven't caught their name yet. That's a big change. And often we don't pick up on the fact that it's happened until it has. It's a good change. Who doesn't want their church to grow? But with this change comes some cost. And that cost, and every church who makes this transition goes through this change, okay? This is not unique to EBC. Every church that goes through that transition experiences this cost, which is the loss of that warm, predictable feeling of just knowing who you're going to see at church every week and knowing those people really well because you knew that set of people for quite a long time. And then, of course, more changes happened halfway through this 15-year period. If you look at the last 15 years, almost exactly at the halfway point, this church lost a long-term pastor. And then there were a number of changes in leadership over the next three years. We had a number of long-term people like Wilf Hopfe and Catherine Healy go to be with the Lord, people who had been a part of this church from its the very beginning. And that went, when, those, when that generation starts to move on, that is, causes quite a change in the, the feel of a church that, once again, you might not pick up on until, until after the fact. And, and then uh, in 2020, there's this little thing you might have heard of called COVID-19. And it, it rocked our world, and it, it, it really affected uh, how we, how we do, did church for a time. And, and it affected the composition of our church in, in a number of ways, such that the composition of our church today looks more different than, than it did before COVID. It looks quite a bit different than it did before COVID. And so practically, if you add all of this together, what it means is that these days, it's all the more likely that if you come to a service uh, at Emmanuel Baptist Church, you will be worshiping with people that you may not know very well. Now, in some churches, that's just normal. But for EBC, that's a change, especially if we think back to who we were 10 to 15 years ago. And when you have changes like this, many of the unspoken 
assumptions that shape the culture of a church kind of are up in the air. There's many unspoken assumptions in a church, like who, who are the people that are, you know, at the core and those who are, who are not? How long do you attend before you start serving? Where should you start serving? How does that look like? Who goes to things like Bible studies and baby showers and who doesn't? And all kinds of unspoken assumptions in, in that, that, that inform a church's culture. And many of those questions might feel a bit more up in the air for us today than, than they did in the past. Given how much we've changed in the last number of years, there's some bigger questions. Who are we really? Who are we going to be as we move into the future? And what role do each of us get to play in that process? Those are big questions that we get to answer in this season together. So do you see what I mean when I say we're at a unique, we're at a unique point in our, in our history as a church? Lots of questions unanswered. I don't think this is a bad thing. I think this is a gift. We're at a point in our life together as a church where we get to decide together on who we are going to be. We get to ask, not how have we always done things, but rather how should we do things. We get to ask not who were we, but rather who should we be. We get to ask not what was, but rather What should be? What kind of a church should we be as we step into the future together? And so as we find ourselves in this juncture where there are more and more people who are part of our church that have not been here for a really long time and we're we're deciding together on what's the culture of our church going to be like uh, and we have these questions on the table, where do we turn to answer those questions? Do we pass out surveys and tabulate our preferences and coin some slogans and hope something sticks? Or do we look intently to the sufficient word of God and listen to what God has told us about how to be a healthy, vibrant, spirit-filled church? I think you know of those two options, which is the right answer. And that's why we're making the stop this morning. We want to go back to Acts 2 And be reminded again of what happens when God draws a people together around his son. And I think there's going to be a lot for us to see in these words. As we look at the kind of community that we want to be. This message, you see the title of Devoted Church. The initial title for this message was Becoming the Kind of Church That We Would Want to Join. And uh, that's still sort of there in the background there. How do we become the kind of church that we would really want to join. And, and um, I think when we read Acts 2, we see a church that we would want to join. H- how do we get there? Well, first we're going to ask, what produces this kind of community? That's our first big question this morning. What produces this kind of community? The Acts 2.42 church, right? Verse 42 is kind of the key verse here in this whole passage. The Acts 2.42 church did not just happen. And you can't make this church happen by creating some new programs and just telling people, okay, guys, we're going to devote ourselves to these four things. Let's go for it. It doesn't work that way. You can't do that. In order to understand the Acts 2.42 church, we have to go back. We have to go back to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. 
where the risen Lord Jesus fulfilled ancient promises by pouring out the Holy Spirit upon his disciples. And then we have to go to verses 14 and following where Peter stood up and proclaimed this Jesus as Israel's long-awaited Messiah, the fulfillment of Israel's story, the fulfiller of all God's promises, particularly the promise and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Peter summed up this powerful sermon. I'm looking forward to preaching through Acts one day, and I just can't wait to work our way through Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon here. It's just, it's it's incredible in so many ways. And he sums up this powerful sermon in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This crucified Jesus is God and Messiah. That's the sense there of Lord and Christ. And therefore, it's by calling on his name that you can be saved, right? So Peter's message was largely about unpacking that, that statement from the prophet that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the point of Peter's sermon is Jesus is that Lord. So call on him and be saved. Here's the problem, though. Jesus is Lord and Christ. And they just killed him. Just think about that. Have you ever had one of those moments where you've like waited and waited and waited for one shot at something and then the opportunity comes along and you totally blow it? Okay, turn that up to like 12,000. That's what their experience was that day. They've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for the Messiah to come and he came and they didn't recognize him and they killed him and now he's gone. Can you imagine? And so you see them crying out. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. No kidding. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And here comes the good news of the gospel. Jesus chose his death as the way to pay for his people's crimes. He was taking the punishment for the very crime that put him on the cross. And he didn't stay dead. And so Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. This is verse 38. For the forgiveness of your sins, the forgiveness that Jesus died to purchase, because he bore the judgment for your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Yes, you murdered the Messiah, but you can be forgiven for that. The Holy Spirit that the risen Christ poured out, he's for you. So repent of your sin and be baptized in Jesus' name. And verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people that day received the word. They heard the word and they said, yeah, I believe this. This is for me. And they were baptized. And it is these people who went on to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and the other elements that we see in verse 42 and following. So don't miss this. You cannot get a church without the gospel. You cannot create this vibrant community that we see in verse 42 without the razor-sharp preaching of the gospel of Jesus. A gospel which exposes our sins such that we cry out, what can I do? What must we do? And then which applies the healing balm of the gospel to that wound, right? That's what the gospel does. It exposes our sin, and then it shows us that we're forgiven and righteous in Christ. And this gospel convicts us and comforts us. It's a gospel which calls people to pledge their allegiance 
and union to Jesus in baptism, right? The gospel is a call to be, well, the, the, the way we respond to the gospel is by being baptized. And this gospel produces a people centered on the risen Jesus, gathered around his throne and filled with his Holy Spirit. So hear this, you cannot get an Acts 2 church without an Acts 2 gospel. It, 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 it's just impossible. But let's flip this around and let's, let's say it this way. An Acts 2 gospel always produces an Acts 2 church. 3,000 people that day believed the gospel, and they didn't just go their separate ways as spiritually enlightened people. No, when people respond to the gospel, what happens? They come together. That's what happens. The gospel produces a church. And so, once again, while it's not bad to use phrases like our, having a personal relationship with Jesus or Jesus being our personal Lord and Savior, those phrases aren't bad, but they can get lopsided. Because having a relationship with Jesus always brings us into relationship with everybody else who has a relationship with him. The gospel produces a church. Those who receive the word were, verse 41, added to the church. You get added to the church. And this is not just talking about the universal church. This is talking about the church in Jerusalem. Added to that number. Literally counted among that group of Christians. 3,000 people were out of the church that day. How, how do they know? Someone was counting. They knew who was there and who became a part of that group of Christians. So the gospel does not produce Lone Ranger Christians. See, this is the flip side, right? You can't get a church without the gospel. And what I'm saying here is you, you can't have the gospel without a church. The gospel does not produce Lone Ranger Christians. To be saved is to be added to the church, and to be saved is to be added to a church. At least that is the way it should be. So this is what produces this community. The gospel, baptism, the Holy Spirit, that's what produces this community. Now, what characterizes this community? So a second big question. What characterizes this community? What happened to these early Christians when they believed the gospel, were filled with the Spirit, were baptized and then we're gathered into the church. And in verses 42 to 47, we get five characteristics of this early community. Now, uh, verse 42 is kind of the key verse. And some of the other verses that follow sort of unpack it a little bit and expound on it. And then pointing to five characteristics here. Four of them are very clear. They're what I'll say they're above the waterline. And then there's a fifth that's beneath the waterline. It's there, but we got to just look beneath the waterline a little bit to see it. So the first characteristic is devotion to the apostles' teaching. That's right there in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You'll remember that the apostles were the authoritative spokesmen for the risen Jesus. Jesus commissioned them to speak for him. You can go back to John 14 to 16 or Acts chapter 1, and you can see where this happened. The apostles spoke for Jesus unpacking and explaining what Jesus did. I, I remember for years, I read about Jesus' teaching in, in Luke 24, how he taught on the, the, the road to Emmaus. And I remember thinking, man, I just wish I could have heard Jesus unpack the Old Testament scriptures for us and show how it's all about him. Well, guess what? That's what the apostles' teaching is for, is, is to do that for us. And so we have the apostles' teaching today 
in the New Testament. That's what the New Testament is, the apostolic deposit. And in the book of Acts, and in the books written by the apostles, or written by those who were close associates of the apostles, we have the apostles' teaching. For them, it wasn't written down yet. They heard it from their mouths directly all the time. That would have been amazing. And they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They wanted to learn everything they could about Jesus and how he was the fulfillment of Israel's story. And so this is one of the first characteristics of a spirit-filled Christian and therefore a spirit-filled church. They're hungry for the word of God and they're devoted to the apostles' teaching about Jesus from all of Scripture, which is just for us a way of saying all the New Testaments together. The second characteristic of this community is fellowship. Verse 42, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship. Fellowship is a word that we often use as a verb. Like uh, we talk about the, the, the fact that we have a fellowship hall where people met for some fellowship. Fellowship is something we, we do. That's often how we think about it. But in this setting, it's a noun. It's not a verb. It's not an activity. It's a, it's a noun. It's a, it's a thing. As a noun, fellowship has to do with sharing. In fact, this word here for fellowship, in its verb form, because it's often a verb in the New Testament, when it's a verb, it's typically translated or often translated as the word share. So the word fellowship has to do with sharing. Sharing something together. And so when we speak about Christian fellowship, we're primarily speaking about the fact that Christians share life together. We share life together. And this sharing of life begins with a sharing of Jesus. See, this is why it's so important that we start with the gospel. Almost every group of people that gathers in this world gathers because they share something together. You have like a hobby group interested in like model trains So what do they share? They share a love for model trains, and that's what brings them together. You might have a group of people really interested in cars or skateboarding or collecting stamps, and so what brings them together is the fact that they share this together. What brings the church together? It's that we share Christ. We share Christ together. The roots of our fellowship come from the fact that we have fellowship with Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.9 God is faithful by which you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We've been called into fellowship with Jesus. That's what baptism is a symbol of, right? That's why it's so important that baptism is in there. We've become united to Jesus and in baptism we enact that we're united to him. We've shared in his death and his resurrection. And if Jesus, therefore, is, is my life, and Jesus is your life, if I've been united to the death of Jesus, and so have you, if I've been united to the life of Jesus, and so have you, if I share in Jesus, and so do you, then we share the same life. And it's this fellowship that with Jesus, that is the basis of the fellowship that Christians have with each other. But it goes on from there, right? Because we share the same life. And so Acts, uh, Acts 2.42 just says the fellowship 
But if we go down to verse 44, we get a sense of what it looked like for those early Christians to share life together. What the fellowship looked like for them. It meant that they shared all of life. That included meeting together. Verse 44, and all who believed were together. And the sense there is together in one place. And we're going to see that in Acts 5.12. They were literally together in one assembly, right? The church is a gathering. They were together in one assembly because they could meet in Solomon's portico. Solomon's portico is this huge building that was like five football fields long, so they could all meet together. And, and so they, they sharing a life together, fellowship, included meeting together. And yet it went on from there because it included sharing also the things of this life with each other. Verse 44 goes on to say, they had all things in common. Acts 2.45 unpacks this further. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So if we share Jesus together, then that also means that if we need to, we're going to share our stuff together. Because I'm not going to share Jesus with you and yet keep my stuff to myself, right? That's the sense here. So they're, they're share Jesus together. They're meeting together. And then they were also uh, sharing their possessions with each other. And the church banded together to take care of each other. Here's what we have to think about. Thousands of people had traveled to Jerusalem from outside to stay there for, the, for this feast. They had, came to faith in Jesus and they stuck around in Jerusalem. So these were, there were maybe hundreds of people there who didn't have jobs and we're staying there to, to learn more about Jesus together as part of this new church. And so they had to be taken care of. So the Jerusalem Christians were selling their things to take care of this community. Now, this wasn't a form of early communism. If you go to chapter 5, you'll see that they still believed in the private ownership of property. Right? That's the whole thing with Ananias and Sapphira. Peter says, look, this was, you could decide to do with this what you wanted to. So they weren't communists. Nobody was forced to sell their possessions and give them away. And nowhere does the Bible tell Christians, quit your jobs, pool your money, and live in a commune. Okay, so this is not telling us what we have to do. The point isn't that Christians have to do this. The point is that Christians would do this if we had to. If we had to. And they were in a spot where they had to. They needed to do this to support this community, and so that's what they did. If our brothers and sisters are in need, we'll help them out even if that means selling some of our stuff to pay for it. Because if we share Christ together, how much more will we share the things of this life together? So they were devoted to the fellowship, the sharing. Fourth, or third rather, eating together. This is sort of a continuation of fellowship, but, but Luke puts it under a separate heading here. When it talks about they, them being devoted to the breaking of bread. And this is interesting. There's some uncertainty here about what this is specifically referring to because sometimes we use the phrase breaking of bread to describe the Lord's Supper. And the New Testament does that sometimes. Other times, the breaking of bread in the New Testament simply talks about eating a meal together because that's what the Jewish people would do. They'd have a loaf of bread, they'd break it, and they'd eat it. And this phrase breaking of bread is used in both senses in the New Testament. So there's a question here in Acts 2.42 when it says they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Was this talking about the Lord's Supper or was it talking about just eating together? And I'm inclined to see that it is speaking generally about eating together. 
Not saying that they didn't celebrate the Lord's Supper, but I think that this phrase breaking of bread, probably if it points in one direction more, it goes towards eating together because verse 46 says this, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So see the connection it makes between breaking bread and just receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. Now, some scholars think that in the early church, they probably celebrated some form of the Lord's Supper with every single meal that they ate together. And that's, that's possible. But the emphasis here seems to be on sharing meals together. These early Christians were devoted to the practice of shared meals. With all of the out-of-town guests, this probably meant the Jerusalem people were having hospitality Sunday every single day. But this was just a way of life for them. Fourth, prayer. It's the fourth characteristic of this community. Prayer. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to, this is interesting, the prayers. See that? It doesn't say prayer. It says the prayers. Probably this is referring to the regular times of prayer at the temple. Okay? The Jews had set times of prayer, and devout Jews would go to the temple for these set times of prayer. Verse 42, or sorry, 46 points this way when it says day by day they were attending the temple together just a few verses down chapter 3 verse 1 now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer the ninth hour so that's what they were doing they would go pray together at the temple so they they weren't going to the temple to offer sacrifices because Jesus had finished that off but they went there to pray praying together was a part of the rhythm of their life and it's hard to not It's hard to imagine them not praying together as they met in their homes. There's a fifth characteristic. This is the one that's beneath the waterline. It's not not above the waterline. It's beneath the waterline, but I think it's not hard to see it. And this is commitment. Verse 47 tells us, They were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here's, here's, Here's what I'm getting at here. There was a, quite a cost to being a Christian in those days. Think about it. You were worshiping a man who had just been arrested and executed by the government just seven weeks prior. Okay. Jesus had been, like, formally, if we were to put a charge, he'd been arrested and, and killed for sedition, for uh, speaking against the authorities and the powers. He was a criminal. And you got a group of people gathering and worshiping this criminal. This is dangerous stuff. Acts 2 flows right into Acts 3 and 4, where we read about Peter and John, the two key leaders, getting arrested for preaching. Then again in chapter 5, the apostles get arrested. In chapter 6, Stephen is arrested, and then he's killed in chapter 7. Being a Christian was dangerous stuff. And so you didn't do it casually. You didn't cross over that line of saying, I'm in. I'm a part of this group. Just because you wanted something fun to do on the weekends. You had to be committed. This commitment shows up in the way that the church had a really crisp understanding of who was and who was not a part of their number. Here in 247, it says the church had favor with all the people, which means that they could tell the difference between those who had committed to Jesus and committed to the church and, on the other hand, all the people. They knew there was a difference. And it doesn't mean they weren't welcoming and loving towards all the people. It just means that they knew the difference. And when people from all the people 
crossed over to become a believer in Jesus, they were added to the number of the Christians. So not only was someone counting, but they knew that who was and who was not a part of the church. And you wouldn't have joined the church unless you had been really born again and become convinced that Jesus was not only worth living for, but worth dying for. We see the same dynamic in 5.13. Listen to this, chapter 5, verse 13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So you see that thing there of people on the outside respecting the church deeply, esteeming them, and yet I'm not, I'm not going to join them, perhaps because the cost was so high. But then the next verse, verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So once again, we see this dynamic come out. So all of this implies that joining the church wasn't something you did casually. You had to be really committed to doing this. And of course, this idea of commitment just shows up in this word devoted. 242, they were devoted. This is a word that speaks of constancy, of perseverance. These people were committed to being the church together. So, five characteristics, and certainly not all the characteristics that we could unpack here. There's so much more that we could see. But these are five characteristics of the Jerusalem church. Uh, One of the things that these verses don't tell us about, you know, I just said they don't tell us everything. They don't talk about the outward focus of the church. They don't talk about how the church was missional. Now, it's true in in this stage, probably most of the ministry to those outside was probably being done at least, let me say that differently. Most of the preaching of the gospel was being done by the apostles. At this stage, the church probably was fairly focused on building themselves up for a season. And, and, and God changed that in a few chapters when he sent them out and says those who went out preached the word wherever they go. So we can't say Acts 2.42 is everything because then you'd be like, well, what about mission? Okay, you got to keep going with it and see how things develop. We also know the church develops structure. They needed some structure. We see that in Acts chapter 6. And that gets developed later on in, in the structure of elders and deacons. And, and so the church did develop from this point, And those developments were good. So here, here's how we can put it. A biblical church involves more... Being a biblical church involves more than just Acts 2.42. But being a biblical church will never be less than Acts 2.42. When the Holy Spirit draws a person to faith in Jesus, they will be drawn into a committed community together with others. And that community will be marked by devotion to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to sharing meals together, and yes, to the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And so now we come to the really important question, which is how do we be this kind of community today? How can our church How can our church be marked by these same characteristics as the early church? And I'm going to try to answer that question in four slices, four different ways. Number one, we stay centered on the gospel. That's where it started for Acts 2, and that's where it's got to always stay for us. We want to be a church that stays centered on the gospel, a church that celebrates, preaches, treasures, applies, articulates the gospel. And you may think this is naive, but I really believe that as we focus on Jesus and his gospel 
And as we keep our eyes on him, the person and work of Jesus, that much of the community that we long for will simply flourish. If you're focused on Jesus and I'm focused on Jesus, we're focused on the same thing. That's going to make a difference in our relationships. Now, for some of you, applying this might mean believing the gospel for the first time. I never, ever, ever want to assume that just because someone's in church means that they have believed the gospel. Do you believe that God has made Jesus, who was crucified, both Lord and Christ? Do you know that you're a sinner who deserved to be on that bloody cross? Do you know that Jesus paid it all and that by trusting in him, you can be forgiven for all of your sins and filled with the Holy Spirit and given eternal life? Have you, have you, have you repented of your sins and have you pledged your life to Jesus in baptism? We're having a baptism in October, on October 16th, by the way, uh, the week right after Thanksgiving. And I would love to include you in that if you have believed in Jesus but have not responded to him in baptism. See, this is where it starts. This is where an Acts 2 church starts, believing the gospel and responding to Jesus in baptism. Now, if you have believed in the gospel and have been baptized, then don't tune out the gospel. Don't think that you don't need it. That's a, a, a mistake that some Christians make is they think the gospel is for unbelievers. And you can't get that idea from the New Testament because you see repeatedly the gospel being applied to believers. We need the gospel in so many different ways. We need the blood-bought grace of Jesus in our lives today, here, and now. So listen to the gospel, receive it, remind yourself of it, speak the truth of it to one another and do your part in helping ensure that whatever community we build here, we build it on the gospel. So that's the first answer. We stay centered on the gospel. The second answer, how do we do this? I'm, uh, the, the, the title for this point here is, is join in. And what this has to do with what uh, I'll call our official activities as a church. I'm thinking about things like our Sunday evening gatherings, our small groups, even Hospitality Sunday that we're doing today. What I hope you can see is that each of these activities that we do as a church, we do because we, we believe they flow out of the Acts 2.42 priorities. So we don't just do stuff because it seems like a good idea or because we want to be busy. We seek to be a scripture-shaped church, and that means that we want our activities to be shaped by biblical priorities. That even applies to occasional events like baby showers. It's a way that we share life with one another. It's an expression of fellowship. Now, there are various reasons, like schedule and distance, that keep that may keep, keep you from participating in our church activities. One of the things that we've come to, to realize is that we are a church that serves a region, not just people in a, in, who are five minutes away. We, and so for some people, because of distance and because of schedule, participating in some of these other activities we do beyond Sunday morning just may not be a possibility. And we, we understand that. And we certainly do not expect everybody to be at everything all the time. But let me put it this way. Here's, here's what I'm saying here. If you want to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, a.k.a. the Bible, we do some great things to help you get started with that. If you want to be committed to sharing life together, we've got some great ways that you can get started on that. 
That's why we do what we do. Now, I want to speak very specifically for a moment to those of you who have perhaps not been at EBC for terribly long. Let's say the five-year and under crowd. I've been the new guy at other churches before. And I know that feeling about hearing about things like a men's Bible study or adult Sunday school and just assuming that's not for me. That's going to be full of people who all know each other really well. I'm going to be the sole outsider. I'm not going to have any clue what's going on. Everybody's going to look at me strange when I show up. That's not for me. And I just want to say that's not true. We're at a stage in our life together as a church where we're all just figuring this stuff out together. And these things that we do, they're for you. Hear that, please. So don't, here's another, here's another thought. You might think, well, uh, I'm not going to go because I don't know anybody. What I would respond is that going is, is how you get to know people. It, that's, how, that's how you make those relationships. When my mom died, we were relatively new at our church, and we had a bunch of people show up at her funeral that we didn't know very well. It wasn't weird at all. It was wonderful. It was encouraging. We built some good relationships with people that way. It's the same thing I remember with Judah's baby shower. People showed up and gave us gifts, and we didn't know them very well. It wasn't strange. It was wonderful, especially the gifts. (laughs) Glad you laughed. That was a joke. It was the people. So don't stay away from things because you don't know people. Showing up is how we build these relationships. Now, for those of you who have been a part of EBC for some time, you can be a powerful part of, of helping this happen by inviting people to come with you, knowing that it might be hard for them to come on their own. Be the person to say, hey, I'm going to the Bible study tonight. Do you want to come? Be the person to say, hey, I'm going to that baby shower on Saturday. you want to come? Yeah, no, actually, I don't, I don't know them very well either. Uh, I don't know how many people will be there because I don't know if many people know them at all. So let's, let's go bless them anyways. Be the person to have those kinds of conversations. That's the second answer to this question. How do we be this kind of community? As we're able, we participate in the different things that we do as a church. As you're able. And that's true whether you've been here for a short time or a long time. But we need more. We need to move on to number three here which is that uh, my title here is In All of Our Life. Because here's the thing, Acts 2.42 is not fundamentally about church programs. Church programs, church events are a good place to start. But look at Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves, verse 45, and they, verse 46, and day by day, they. Nobody had to force these people to do these things. This was about them being full-time Christians, every person in the church giving themselves fully to life together. We talked about this last week, that the Christian life is about people getting close to each other to help each other get close to Jesus. That's what the Christian life is about. That's another way of describing discipleship. And so these different events that I just talked about, they're just starting places, prayers and hopes that, that, that some of this would just become a normal part of our life. Behind every official activity we plan is a dream that we would be the kind of church, 
where it's normal to hear people say things like, hey, why don't the three of us do a potluck dinner together on Thursday evening? Or, do you want to meet up over lunch hour to read the Bible together? Or, this was really good. Let's pray for a few minutes before you go. Or, I heard about your loss, and we don't know each other really well, and I'm not exactly sure what to say, but I just wanted to tell you I'm praying for you. Long to be a church where things like that are normal, where people can't wait to come and stay long after the service to talk and pray with people. A church of full-time disciple-making disciples who just naturally love to share life with each other. In other words, an Acts 2.42 kind of church. So often, what is it that holds us back from engaging with other people in those ways? It's because it can be awkward, right? Feel really awkward. It's out of our comfort zone. But what if our comfort zone is poisoning us? I just read a quote last night. What if life starts at the end of your comfort zone? What if there's a lifetime of territory to explore just beyond the edge of what you're used to? That's an exciting thought, isn't it? Think of what's out there. Think of what's out there beyond the known realm of our comfort zone. There's a fourth and final step this morning that uh, I'm going to mention in terms of how we put this into practice. It has to do with commitment. I believe that commitment is very often the missing ingredient that keeps North American churches from experiencing the kind of close-knit, vibrant community that we see here in Acts chapter 2. See, for the Jerusalem Christians, commitment was built in. There are other Christians uh, in other countries around the world today where commitments just build in. If you're in Iran and you go to church, you're in. You're committed because of how high the stakes are and how dangerous it is. But here in North America, where we have a culture of church attendance, it's very possible to participate in a church with, with no commitment, either implicit or, or explicit. It wasn't always like that. In previous generations, if you look at how previous generations talked about the church, they didn't talk so much about attending church as much as joining a church. That was more the kind of language that was used. And committing to a church was just normal. And here at EBC, we want to bring that back. We want to make the privilege of commitment a normal and a celebrated part of what we do together. And the word that we use for that commitment here at EBC is membership. And I know that as soon as I use that word, some people get uncomfortable. Because in some other church settings, membership was a really, really negative experience. It was all about politics. It was all about control. Church leaders getting people in a spot where they could manipulate them. But here at EBC, even though we might use the same word, what we mean is probably different than what, than what you might think we mean. Membership is simply the word we use for the way that we express our commitment to each other to be the body of Christ together. That, 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 that's, that's essentially it. Membership is just how we say, I'm in. You're my people. I'm committing to be accountable to this family. It's not about committing to a group of leaders or to an organization, but fundamentally, it's about committing to each other to be the body of Christ together. 
And so this is just a very brief advertisement for our membership seminar on October 15th that you can see there in your bulletin. Breakfast is included. We're going to be talking that morning. What's it mean to be committed to a group of Christians in a local church? Uh, what's that look like here? And uh, and what's the benefit of that? What's the uh, what what is the privilege of that? And if even if all you are is curious, you're invited to come uh, be a part of it. You don't really have to register, except that we're serving breakfast. So that just lets us know uh, how how much breakfast to prepare. And uh, I want you to know about that. Until then, I just want to ask a couple questions. If you haven't made a commitment to a specific local church, could it be that that commitment is a missing piece in really experiencing the close relationships that you long for? But the, the other side of that coin is if you have made that commitment to a local church, are you living it out? Are you sharing life with the people that you've made that commitment with? Are you holding them accountable? Are you inviting them to do the same for you? We just uh, took in a couple of members at, at our last meeting, and, and they said, here's some things I'd like you to hold us accountable on. Will we do that? Are we really committed to life together? There's so much more that I want to say about this, but as we end this morning, here's how I'm going to sum all of this up. I want to encourage each one of us this morning, each one of us, no matter where you're at, to take a step. Don't try to do everything all at once. You shouldn't do that. That's not how it works. But just pick a step, even just a small one, and take one. We've seen lots of examples in these words of of what those steps could include. Why not just pick one this week, a step that you'll take closer to deeper relationship with God's people and therefore with God. The greatest way that we can do that, the greatest step that we can all take, is by focusing on Jesus. Because as we've seen, as we focus on him, we will find ourselves together in the deepest possible way. And that's why we're ending this morning by singing a song that has nothing to do with the church, but it has everything to do with the church. We're going to sing the song, All I Have is Christ. And I want to encourage you, at a point in the song, and we can't all do this at the same time, but pick a point in the song and don't sing and just listen to the people around you. Listen to these voices singing out, All I Have is Christ. Jesus is my life. And just think, if that's true, if Jesus is your life and your life and your life and your life and your life, if Jesus is your life and Jesus is my life, then we share the same life. And what might it look like to actually live that out and express that? We see so many good answers to that on a week-to-week basis in this community And let's keep going. Father, thank you for what you did the day of Pentecost. Thank you for what you're doing here in our midst today. Lord Jesus, would you draw us to Jesus to really understand that Jesus is our life, that his life, death, resurrection, present ministry by his spirit, it's everything. And then that we would delight to share that everything with our brothers and sisters. Bring us together, O God, for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.